don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And today we have Rebecca Goldstein as a guest. She is a philosopher as well as a fiction writer and has published many books, uh, both in fiction and philosophy. Uh, was a National Humanities Medalist. Uh, there's a picture on her website of getting an award from uh, President Obama. And today on this episode, we talk a lot about why mattering matters. You know, having lives that matter to ourselves uh, is of utmost import- importance. And that gets into issues of depression, suicide, all these major things about how to a meaningful life is actually an indispensable part of life. And uh, once again, this episode was recorded in February, well before we knew we would be hit with a global pandemic. And looking over the episode now, I'm amazed at how well it has aged, that these questions of how to find meaning in our lives are, if anything, even more important when we have great disruption. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Rebecca Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So uh, I saw you briefly at the all-night philosophy event at the Brooklyn Library, um, and uh, you gave a talk called Why mattering matters, uh, which is really about, I guess, our search for significance on philosophical terms. And it it sort of was a big talk that, you know, basically, I think, made the claim that if we don't find some meaning or significance in our lives, our lives are in danger. Can you you talk a little bit about um, why mattering matters um, in general and to you? Well, one way to approach this is... um... If you if you go to the uh, U.S. site for suicide prevention, it's called something like uh, Humatter Suicide uh, Prevention dot com. Something I think that's the site. But the you know and a blazon across the top of the website are the words Humatter. And I think that that gets right to the heart of it. Uh, The words, you know, I don't matter, Um, other people do, but I don't, nothing I can do will make me matter, are the most characteristic words of uh, of deep depression. So if there is no way to feel as if you matter, that you might as well not have bothered to show up for your existence at all, for all the difference that you make, it can overcome even the will to live. So this is this is you know something very very deep in us, uh, some way or other to validate our existence. Uh, you know we have to pursue our existence with everything we've got. It's imprinted on our genes as it is on all organisms. Uh, but we are the organism who have these large brains who can step away from our lives and reflect on them and wonder what it's all for. And we do that. We, that is, that is what it is to be human. Uh, so it's, um, it's, and this is a podcast about death. And the one thing I know that can overcome our terror of death is the terror of making no difference at all, of being completely 
uh, insignificant. But there are so many different ways that we find uh, to try to uh, make our lives matter. And, uh, you know, some of them perhaps more successful than others. And that's something that I'm that I'm exploring in my new work. Wow, that's really interesting. There's so much there because I'm imagining, you know, you bring up the example of the suicide prevention hotline and they had the huge tagline where they say, you matter. And they probably say that because they found it works. It saves more lives than something else they could have put up there. That That's what they'll say. Um, and that's what people want to hear from each other. Um, but as a philosophical question, like, um, say you want more of it, or you know you really are depressed and need to hear it. How does one go about starting to matter to themselves? Like, how does that process start for people who aren't there yet? Yeah. Um, well, this is an empirical question that uh, um, I, I'm not really uh, an expert in 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 answering. I mean, I'm doing research about this. You know, reading what other people have learned about this. What's interesting is most for most people um they seem they seem to be convinced <laughs> that they matter one way or the other um and of course the question of, of of you know what it is that makes a life matter is goes all the way back it's it's it is certainly goes back to the beginning of philosophy you know when when socrates said and it's probably the uh, most famous you know words in the history of western philosophy the unexamined life is not worth living he was giving his opinion as to you know what it is that that makes us matter uh that gives us that sense well here's the thing here's the interesting thing there's a difference between having the sense you know that you matter and um and mattering, and what we when we what we say when when we're saying that something matters, and we say it of things, and we say it of people, is we're saying that they're deserving of attention. So it's a normative concept. It's a, it has an ethical dimension to it. Deserving, worthy, uh, that these are things that oblige attention uh, on the part of others. So when we're saying. Uh, that we matter. We're we're making a claim uh, to being, you know, worthy of attention. Now, I actually think, and this is to venture into moral philosophy. I actually think that we can prove that simply to be human is to be worthy of attention. Uh, that this is something. That this is a fundamental moral truth. Uh, that and, and that's not to say that only humans are worthy of attention, but that all humans are worthy of attention. So in some sense, um, you know, moral philosophy kind of hands it to us, although it takes a lot of work to see it. And you can say that moral progress has been the slow, tortuous climb to recognizing this truth, you know, because I mean, and there are still people who don't recognize this truth. There are still, you know, people who think that you have to have some particular kind of characteristic, whether it's gender or race or nationality or talent or something um, in order to be worthy of attention. Um, I think that's wrong. But that this moral philosophy answer is it functions at a different level from what people are 
craving from their lives, which is that there's something um, about them uh, that, 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 that makes them worthy of attention, something distinctive about them. This seems to be a deep, um, a deep psychological truth. So there's the, the psychological truth, there's the moral truth. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there I want to unravel. Because on, on the one hand, of course, it's a deeply, it makes sense that if you're not even uh, willing to examine your own life as and give your own self-attention, that um, is in a way saying you don't matter to yourself, which is very dark. And on the other hand, that moral claim that everyone is worthy of our attention. Well, there's there's billions of us, you know, we can't give everyone our attention, whether or not they're true. worthy of it. How do we choose if that's true? This is this is really true. I mean, the fact that everybody is worthy of attention, which I, I deeply believe, um, and it's one of the things, I, I think it's a moral truth that is embedded in, in fiction, actually, um, the kind of attention that we give to characters that are these made-up made up fictional things that don't even really exist. That kind of attention we give is a, is a sort of training of the sort of attention that is, I believe, coming to people. But what you say is completely true. There are billions of people and we can't give it to everybody. Um, but it's, uh, you know, so we do have to have to make these choices. There's certainly the people who are closest to us who can most benefit from our attention are the ones who get first dibs. Uh, you know, so there are people who, where my attention really makes a difference, certainly my family, certainly first and foremost, my children, um, and, um, you know, but my students and my friends and all this. And, and so, yes, so there is, there's an ordering, there's a priority, uh, but, you know, when you pass or when you hear of certain people who are in terrible straits, um, they're making a claim on us. Uh, I, you know, I, they are worthy of our attention. And uh, so it's a, you know, it's a matter of, you know, doing, doing what one can. One has to pursue one's own life and one's, one's own self gets, um, gets the first claim to attention. For most of us, you know, as long as things are functioning well that you haven't really gone off the rails in terms of your inner psychology, that just comes naturally. The genes really just, they've imprinted that on us, you know, that our own life gets attention. And even, you know, if we feel that we don't matter, that matters to us. You know, that matters to us so much that it will drive us deeply into depression and even to thoughts of, of ending it all. You know, it occurs to me as we're talking just how prevalent attention seeking is, both on an interpersonal level as well as, you know, seeking fame as a celebrity or clout online on social media. Is this all related to this central question of trying to matter to each other? I think so. The way I, 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 uh, I parse this notion of, uh, of, of mannering, which is, which is a very complicated one, um, but as a first approximation, that it is, you know, to, to, to say something matters is saying it deserves our attention. So, yes, attention, I think, is absolutely central. And we, you know, we are a very gregarious species. Uh, we're dependent on one another. Um, and we're dependent on one another for, for the most part, for our, 
our sense that we matter. It's it's attention, um, you know, to be deserving of attention, but for it, attention itself simply feels good. And we are loaded up our whole perceptual system, um, unlike any other animals on this planet, for being able to detect attention. Um, you know, we are, we, we are dependent on others for such a very long period, such a long period of maturity. Um, but we have, you know, neurons that can detect um, to, to a very high degree when people are looking directly at us. I think everybody's always noticed this. You know, you're in a restaurant and somebody is, is, is staring at you peripherally and you know it. You turn around and, you know, it's an old friend or, or, or something or somebody who thought you're somebody else. But we, we come equipped uh, with being able to detect um, attention. Do, James do said, we know how that happens, by the way? Because I've definitely, like, it's not always with the eyes. Like, sometimes you feel the eyes on the back of your head before, yeah. when they're not even in peripheral vision. That has happened to me, and yeah, I mean, countless are, others have described that experience. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's an uncanny ability we have. I do know um, that there are certain cells that are that is simply their function to be able to detect, you know, when people are looking directly at us. If it's if the angle is just slightly off, um, those neurons are not activated. I don't know how the thing at the back of your head works, you know, but I have read about the um, maybe it's you know, the way in the peripheral and they still pick it up. I don't know, but it's uncanny. I agree. It is uncanny, but it really just shows, you know, how equipped we come and it's under it's understandable for creatures that are helpless for so long right i mean think think what our period of immaturity is compared to you know even other primates um we need to be able to to lasso the attention of our fellow creatures and so we're and it just it just feels good william William James in the psych, uh, Principles of Psychology, is, you know, talks about, he says, you know, that there is no hell that he can imagine that's worse than if, you know, somebody were to, you know, go into a world where nobody paid any attention to them at all. That is, I think that's a very deep, deep insight. So you're connecting this up with the... Um, great desire for fame, I think, is is right on. I think that's exactly right. That attention simply feels good, and so more of it can feel better. And to, you know, and what fame is is having lots of attention from people who are complete strangers to you. You know, you don't know them, but they know you, and um, and that is that can make a person feel you know that they that they matter i don't think it's actually if you look at the lives of the famous um it may not be actually the best way of going about uh feeling that you matter because it seems to be something that needs to be a constant and as soon as you fall out of you know as soon as you the, the attention lags or somebody else um exceeds your fame it causes a uh, great distress. In general, I think, and I'm 
research is trying to prove that what I call competitive mattering, um, the forms of trying to validate your mattering by mattering more than others, um, lead to a very unstable sense of mattering. It might not be the best way to go about it. There's a lot of bad faith attention seeking out there, for example. And I've been thinking about this, one of the like practical philosophy things that I've started doing, um, and I would love your opinion on it, is just withdrawing my attention from people who aren't acting in good faith. So for example, like a politician who has lied a certain number of times where I'm just, I don't believe anymore that they're ever going to speak in good faith, rather than argue or yell or get angry at them, just ignore everything they have to say from here on out. They're not acting in good faith, just withdraw attention. And it, on a personal level, it feels great because you have more time and attention for other things. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about withdrawing attention from people? And um, what do you do with people trying to salve this, um, this mattering at their core that they need to feel like they matter with really bad faith actions toward yeah. other people? Yeah, I, I do believe that they don't deserve your attention. Um, I guess, um, you know, I think that people who, you know, for me, um, anybody who goes about, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic wherever I see it, and I see it everywhere, to this need to validate your existence. You know, I think this is, this comes with, this is built into our species. So there's a certain pathos in this, and I'm sympathetic. Uh, however, certain people um, go about it, uh, and the only way that they conceive of, of going about proving that they matter is proving that others matter less. For them, it's a zero-sum game. And, you know, I think this is wrong on philosophical, moral grounds, but it also, you know, well, well, I guess that's enough. It's wrong on philosophical moral grounds, but it also is so draining to, to people who aren't them, right? It's just, it drains. And, you know, we all, you know, we, are, we all have to take care of ourselves, uh, not only ourselves, but we, have, we do indeed have to take care of ourselves. There's a, an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it from um, the great rabbi of, I guess, the Middle Ages, uh, Rabbi Hillel, you know, if I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? I think that that's, you know, you, you do have to be for yourself, otherwise, I mean, you're living your life, and you are trying to flourish, and you're trying to make, make of it a worthy life. So you do have to look out for yourself. If you're only looking out for yourself, then, then what indeed are you? And certain people are really only looking out for themselves, and they drain. They drain from the community, uh, however you define the community. So yes, I think you're completely justified and, in fact, wise. Thank you. <laughs> Adapted from some stoic advice, actually. Uh, just don't pay attention. Don't argue. Just don't pay attention to people yeah, who've lost your trust. Yeah. Uh, so you are a philosopher that also writes novels and fiction. And it occurs to me that we've been speaking about, you know, some deep philosophical parts about being human that really describe a huge portion of human relationships that I've seen from here on out. And I'm just wondering how... How does this sort of philosophical perspective drive how you tell stories about real or, I guess, imagined people in the world? Yeah, 
you know, I've been asked that question so often and and I never give the same answer twice. And I'm going to, <laughs> it just occurs to me, I guess, because of what we've been talking about, I'm going to give you an answer I never have before, um, which is um, when I said that I, my writing novels surprised my, and shocked my colleagues, um, not all of them pleasantly surprised. Uh, and it was because I did very technical kind of philosophy. I had been coming from to philosophy from doing math and physics, and I was most interested in very technical questions in philosophy of, of mathematics, uh, in, uh, in logic, um, foundations of quantum mechanics. Um, and then I, I, uh, I had this uh, experience. I was a young professor of philosophy, and I lost my father. Um, I was 26 years old, and um, he was the person I most admire in the world. And I also gave birth to my first child. And I was thrown into this kind of meta-philosophical state. You know, philosophy is supposed to be so very meta, but I was meta-philosophical. I was wondering what all this philosophy had taught me. It seemed to me I didn't know at all how to mourn um, the loss of a beloved parent or how to raise a child. And I was a philosopher. I mean, you know, and I had had the best training. I had gone to the very best program and, you know, and now as an assistant professor. And I felt I was probably in these deep questions stupider than the average 26-year-old. I, I had sealed my, I had hermetically sealed myself off from ever thinking about these questions and felt somehow I was not supposed to even as a philosopher, but I wanted to think about them. And that's why I wrote my first novel, which was called The My Body Problem. And it was published, you know, a long time ago, 1983. And that's uh, where I, I or my character, I could never really tell the difference because my character was not me, um, came up with this whole idea about mattering and the mattering map. I don't think I could have given myself the freedom to think that way if I were writing in what I thought of as philosophically, you know, it was, it was strictly the analytic tradition in philosophy where everything has to be said extremely precisely. And, um, but I didn't have to do that. Um, because these were my characters' ideas. I wasn't responsible for them. I didn't have to stand behind them. Um, it just gave me this kind Anyway, it turned out to be, you know, the best idea I certainly ever have had, you know, and, and other people have borrowed from it. And, you know, now I'm I'm sort of come around to thinking, to, to really paying it attention, to thinking it's a deserving of attention that this idea of mattering itself matters. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing about it. But... So, yeah, I don't know. So where, where does that leave me? Anyone still confused about this whole, you know, turn that my career had taken, but um, I'm quite grateful for it, actually. So it's interesting because what you're describing, having this, you know, big unorthodox change in career or life direction, is one of the most common stories you see in the literature about a major grief event or um, a major sort of brush with 
understanding you're going to die, like a diagnosis or a, a close, a near accident um, of some kind. And having been through that yourself, where you really sort of bucked the expectations to do something, it sounds like you had to do. Um, why do you think death has that, seems to have that effect on people so often? Yeah. Um, yes. Well, because we, we do so matter to ourselves, right? I mean, we so, um, there is that, uh, you know, that sense of justifying all the bother of, uh, of living a human life. It takes so much attention and so much energy and, um, you know, and we, we, we want to make good on it. And then, and then we realized that it's extremely finite and that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have all the time in the world, uh, to do it. It, you know, it, it really sharpens the attention and, uh, it's, um, yeah. So for me, it wasn't, uh, I did actually, when I was um, 12 years old, have a, a brush with death, um, I was caught in a riptide and uh, dragged out and, and looked out at this uh, gray sea. It was a very gray, stormy day. I shouldn't have been in the ocean and, um, and thought, gee, um, this, this might be this, this might be the end. But I was very I was very, you know, still far removed from it. And um, and <laughs> we're thinking this is really tragic. I'm 12 years old. This is tragic. But it was a kind of very objective, removed, dispassionate view. Maybe because I hadn't swallowed any water yet. Maybe I would have fought a little hard, harder um, if I had. But so, so for me, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a deep experience. And for many years, although I, I've remained an avid swimmer for many years, I couldn't look out at the horizon because it brought back that experience how did you get back to shore oh well fortunately um i had a old older sister who was on the beach and she was a very um, she unfortunately died quite young of um of illness but um she was a of a very nervous nature especially when i went out too far and so she kept her eyes on me and she noticed although i was swimming like crazy I was being drawn away and she went into hysterics, but my mother kept a cool head and ran to a lifeguard and they came out in a rowboat. So it it all had a, it was happy ending in fact, uh, wow. I was, you know, I was very embarrassed by the whole thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes a life changing experience and sometimes some embarrassment. <laughs> But, but, but yes, by the time I was 26 and, uh, you know, when I lost my father, uh, it, it had a huge, a huge, he, he, I, I, he was, yes, he was my hero, um, in many ways. And, um, and, you know, I, it was never a person that I trusted as, as much as I, I did him. He was a deeply religious, uh, person. I don't know if that had anything to do with his purity of soul, but he, he expressed his purity of soul religiously. And, uh, yeah, it was a deep, deep loss. And I wondered how I was going to, to, to get through life with, without his, um, his guidance. This might sound like a funny question, but is there a character in one of your novels that really matters to you because of its 
connection to all this this like deep hard parts of your life or just because you this character went through something that that matters to you how, how did cross that that line from what you created to what you're saying here of you know needing lives that matter to us yeah you know they matter to me tremendously while I'm inhabiting them or they're inhabiting me they certainly absorb every bit of my attention but then when the book is finished they're gone um so you know right now I wouldn't say that any of them matter more than any of the others I mean even the ones who I find um I don't know that I'm cynical about um, because there's a way, you know, it's very hard for us to see through one another. There's such opacity. We never really know what's, what's going on with, with, with others, but a novelist knows what's going on with her characters. There's great transparency. And so I suppose, you know, they all matter to me very much. Um, even the ones that I disapprove of, I would say, and I probably in some sense disapprove of all of them. I mean, I disapprove of myself. I do very judgmental. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I couldn't say. There's one character. Oh, hey, well, here, this is sort of interesting. Well, there's, I have this book um came out of my original passion, which was about quantum mechanics, the foundations of quantum mechanics. It's a very mysterious theory quantum mechanics something bizarre it's telling us something bizarre about our reality um although physicists disagree on what aspect which aspect um they opt for which is the most bizarre aspect that they're going to accept because of quantum mechanics anyway so i have this book called um properties of light a novel of love betrayal and quantum physics it was not one of my best-selling novels at all with a title like that. But there is a big surprise in, in, this, in this novel, and readers get it at various points. I thought I gave it away after the first chapter, but when the book was reviewed, I saw, no, that's some very astute, very gifted readers, you know, literary critics didn't get it until the very end. But in fact, it's written from the point of view somebody who's dead i've just spoiler alert right it's just um that might be one of my weirder characters and it certainly proved to me that the advice that young writers are always given that you have to write about what you know um well i broke that rule because i don't know what it's like to be dead in fact i i very much doubt that it's like anything to be dead i don't believe in an afterlife but um but there it is. I, I, I wrote a, I wrote from the viewpoint of a character who supposedly was dead. But he means a lot to me. He means an awful lot to me, that character. Um, there was such a, it was such a cold and isolated point of view to, uh, to write from. It was a very, very lonely place from which to write. What, what did it feel like to write from that place? Well, he's, um, He's, he's not at peace, you know. He's a ghost. <laughs> so um, he, he is someone who, um, who, who loved, um, he loved, uh, he was part of a three-part relationship, um, his mentor, and, uh, and they're physicists, and the mentor's daughter, who is also a physicist, 
And um, he loved both of those people deeply. And everybody in that relationship, um, in that three threesome, felt deeply betrayed by the other. You know, it's in the subtitle. It's a novel of love, betrayal, and quantum physics. And um, yeah, so there's there's the sense of having loved deeply and having been betrayed, and therefore just not being able to quit, uh, to quit quit this life. And so he's 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 haunting. So it felt it felt dreadful. Is what it felt. Um, although he does come, you know, eventually. Now that I've completely ruined the novel, um, say he comes to a place of peace at the end. Hey, Ian, uh, are you enjoying the uh, conversation? It seems to somehow happen every time. I'm always blown away by your questions and just the amazing diversity of folks who have been on this season. So I'm I'm thoroughly loving it. I don't know um, how we get so lucky to find such amazing folks to to come on and be part of the the We Croak family. It's it's just amazing to me. Yeah, the the secret is that I just shamelessly ask anyone I think is really interesting, and somehow a lot of them say yes. So if you have anybody that has really interesting thoughts on death or anything that we don't talk about enough and would be good for the We Croak podcast out there, listeners, do send recommendations my way. I would love to get your ideas as I hunt for more really awesome guests. And as you're contemplating death in our awesome long-form episodes, we have a new we croak way of interacting with our mortality that's not just a podcast and not just looking at a quote five times a day we have a wonderful new monthly subscription inside of the iphone app called leap and with it you get access to the largest database of quotes about impermanence that we've ever uh, assembled it's over a thousand it's just amazing there's also a weekly challenge that everyone on the planet will will do for each week. And if you collect enough uh, completions for this, you're going to unlock even more features within the app. And with that, back to the awesome conversation at hand. Why was that subject as a philosopher compelling to you? You know, these sort of betrayal and um, love triangle and, um, the like. It's so messy, emotional, all these different things that we don't usually associate with Plato, Socrates, Spinoza. Yeah, no, especially in somebody like me who was trained in analytical philosophy. Um, It's, uh, I, I, I think that there are these two parts of me that, um, that are in conflict with each other and I think a lot of art always comes out of uh, trying to reconcile conflict but there is a you know a part of me who uh, I mean my first passion and it started when I was a kid was math I just love the clarity of math I love that it can lead you to infinity you know we finite creatures can explore infinity but by way of proofs right that that's, it gives us actually demonstrable conclusions that we've proved that to me is um is extraordinary and more than our species deserves in some in some respect um i love that but i don't think it captures um 
you know, everything that's true of us. And I know that. Um, and I think, you know, that we are, we are very messy, messy creatures, uh, that we are, we occupy our contradictions, our inconsistencies very well, not looking at them. And, um, you know, I'm part of the path to progress, both in our own lives, but collectively through the years, through the decades, through the centuries, through the millennia, is, uh, you know, to, to look at the messiness and, uh, and to confront it and see what it's, what it's hiding yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I started a podcast about death is, you know, I believe the people who've told me that you don't get to the truth by avoiding the things you don't want to look at. Uh, you don't get to happiness, you don't get to a lot of things. And it sounds like you feel the same way about sort of the messiness of relationships, human life, from a philosophical point of view, that there's probably important philosophical truths in those places that we have to look at or we'll miss them. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And, um, you know, and the very, the very things that uh, we, we don't want to look at are, are often hiding, you know, the, the essential, the essential truth. Um, and so it, it, it takes courage uh, and it takes the help of, of others as well uh, to call us all these things. Um, I, one of the, the things that I so value um, in, in the philosophical tradition is, you know, we're trained to be um, quite critical and sometimes brutally so, and some people wield it as, a, again, as a way of competitive mattering gamesmanship, you know, one-upmanship and all of that. Who's the smartest philosopher in the room? And that's, uh, I find, unworthy. Uh, calling yourself a philosopher, but the thing that is, you know, that is trained, this sort of critical reasoning, looking for the weak spots, looking for the premise that is absolutely essential, but that's being hidden, you know, that you're, you're presuming it, but not even acknowledging that it's there. Sometimes it takes the well-trained critical skills of others to call you on this. And, uh, I think this is a very valuable lesson if, if done with in the right spirit. It's a very valuable gift we can give one another. Yeah. And so you have a, a new book called Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. I guess, you know, talk, talking about philosophy and, and modern life. And so we've already established in this conversation that much of the attention seeking we see literally everywhere is people trying to salve a deep philosophical need <laughs> but yeah. I was wondering at other places there might be some deep philosophical premises hiding in plain sight in this modern world where we don't think often unless we're watching the good place or something that we're looking at philosophy uh, in modern yeah. pop culture yeah well you know it's interesting how it's how it's come up, I think, very prominently in um, recent uh, culture, especially in political culture, you know, the, the, does truth matter? <laughs> um, you know, that uh, we have, you know, people challenging whether truth itself matters, um, or is it rather just, uh, you know, your team that matters, right? So there's, there's so much ideology um, that suddenly is overcoming political life. 
and and sort of loyalty to the team. I don't want to betray my own political allegiances, but can you actually they might ex- come out? <laughs> explain, uh, and that's fine if your political allegiances come out. I don't mind because um, I've heard this one before, where people say, "Does truth matter anymore?" And I, I want it to personally, but. No one's ever explained like why truth should matter more yes. than tribal affiliation. Like why why don't our neighbors or whoever we think is our tribe matter more than the truth? Yeah, because a lot of people seem to believe it does, and uh, I don't think I've heard like the actual argument on why we should weigh truth more than um, you know what we see as our tribe or our team. Yeah, I I think it is just implicit in language and in the usefulness of language. Uh, When I assert something, I'm asserting that it's true. When you assert something, you're asserting that it's true. And I have to trust you on this. We're not all of us in the right place to know all true things. And the reason language developed in the first place was so that we could pool our information uh, in order to survive. Uh, You know, so when the guy came back and told us where, you know, back in the hunter-gatherers and told us, you know, where the honeybees were and we're starving, and, you know, we we trust his word. Uh, We have to. That that there would be no language. Uh, There would be no usefulness for language. There would be, we wouldn't be us. Uh, unless, you know, when we assert something, we're asserting that it's true um, and that we can trust one another uh, f- for this. I mean, we all, reality is reality, whether we recognize it or not. And it's going to, it's going to kill us if we don't, if we don't recognize what's true about it. And that's, that's, that's how we've Evolve. That's how we've gotten along. That's why we've got these big brains. So, and even when somebody says, "Look, truth doesn't matter," well, that's an assertion, right? I mean, why should I believe that that's true if truth doesn't matter, or you know, that the team matters? Um, I mean, that there's no way to non-circularly get around this. It's so basic. Yeah, you're almost making this powerful argument that. If without some value toward truth, nothing makes any sense anymore, and we all go insane. And we all go that insane. It's, yes. it's that prime. It's that primal to our understanding of, the, yeah. of ourselves in the world. I think without so. even imperfectly trying to have truth as a value, uh, yeah, nothing makes sense. Nothing can be trusted. We all go crazy. We yes, we can't coherently pursue a recognizably human life. Without the truth mattering to us, yeah, I would, I would, I would argue that yes, um, and we wow. we ought to <laughs> we ought to pursue. That's uh, you know, that's really big. Um, so in a in an age where truth is up for debate, are we in danger of losing our minds? Is that is that what's happening in this current moment? Yeah, that- we're in danger of losing our minds. We're in danger of losing our planet. <laughs> we're in danger of you know, uh, yeah. Right. So Doing can, things that are literally insane, like poisoning our planet. Exactly. You know, I don't know how many species have already gone 
out of existence because of our recklessness and uh and they matter too <laughs> you know i that's a different argument uh but but they they matter as well and certainly future generations um of human beings matter so it's uh yeah if i'm going to claim you know that anything matters at all i'm going to claim that the truth matters first and foremost um and it's uh this is a very dangerous game we're playing, especially at this juncture. With but it occurs to me that the tribal affiliation argument, you know, goes back to, well, I, you know, I care about my family or my uh, more than those people. Yeah. But it, it comes down to that thing you said at the, about the beginning, that this is a zero-sum game fallacy, that um, they think that if their tribe loses or loses face or, you know, that the other side wins and that yeah. therefore even untruth is justified. Um, and um, you're saying it's just not worth the cost. You go crazy once you give up truth. Yes. Uh, or, you know, better I, to be wrong. <laughs> there are, yes, I think so. I think um, there are certain special cases in which one might morally choose to lie, you know, that there are such cases. Um, but uh, in general, I mean, it has to be a very, very special case. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, if I'm hiding, you know, if I'm hiding some, some prison, you know, some bad guys are after some innocent person and I'm hiding that person in my closet and the bad guys come and say, are you hiding that person? I'm going to lie. <laughs> there yeah, are, but Usually that comes from a greater commitment to the truth than exactly. whoever is enforcing the law. The examples people give are like the Underground Railroad or exactly. hiding um, Jews during the Holocaust. Exactly. And it's because they've thought more deeply and thought, you know, these lives matter enough that I'm willing to break the law exactly. and deceive you. But not because I don't care about the truth. Exactly. Only because I care about the truth very much. I'm putting my life at risk to care about the truth. So. Beautifully said. Perfectly said. Yes. I think those are examples that, you know, on the surface there might be deception, but deep down they're about the truth and about upholding it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in the very the very thought that we have to construct these special examples, you know, itself proclaims that in general, as you put it, the truth matters. And there's just no human life without that. And literally, there will be no human life if we don't uh, heed what what the truth is about such things as climate change. I feel like our conversation has come very full circle to the examined life again and why looking at ourselves matters. Yeah. Including those dark, messy spots as well that uh, you take up in your fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm just thinking about the the dark, the dark messiness, and uh, seems right now to be just oozing up all around us. Do, do you have any final thoughts about the dark messiness for us and what you see there? I I, I tend uh, to be a very optimistic person. I think uh, to to write books, you have to be extremely optimistic, right? Because it's it itself is such a messy and. Uh, you know, discouraging and frustrating, um, as well as rewarding experience. But you have to be quite optimistic to start a book and to continue a book. Um, but this is the first 
you know, time in my life when I'm um, very often feeling despair, um, precisely for these reasons that we we touched upon um, towards the end of our conversation. So um, there is so much that matters when you actually start paying attention to this. There's so much, you know, that is deserving of our attention, including, you know, every sentient creature. Um, we can't we can't uh, pay attention to all of them, but in their own way, they're all worthy. Um, and so much else that matters, truth and, and beauty and justice and all the things that Plato said matter. It would be a damn shame for this uh, noble experiment to come to an end. And sometimes I fear, I really fear it's going to. Wow. That's dark enough. <laughs> it's dark enough for me. Uh, but also I love bringing it down to the basic truth of examine your life, matter to yourself, uh, care about the truth, uh, and um, your life will be better no matter which way the rest of it goes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good, that's a good, okay, I like that. A little bit of that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, well, that's yeah. Uh, that's where I try to bring it if I can, just to when we so much in this world we cannot control, but we can matter to ourselves and examine our lives and live um, the best we can, and we'll do better if we do. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, um, Rebecca Goldstein. And uh, usually at the end of the episodes, I just give guests a chance to um, say any books you want people to check out or places to find you if they've really enjoyed um, listening to you over this last hour, which I'm sure a lot of people will, uh, so that they can hear more from you. Well, yeah, I've, I've, I've written, written 10 books, um, and they're all available. Oh, except for one. The second, the second book I wrote is out of print, but all, all the, the other nine are, are in print. So, um, yeah. Perhaps somebody, and there's fiction, and there's nonfiction. I have a book on Spinoza, who's one of my very, very favorite philosophers. A, a very, um, certainly my favorite philosopher to teach, and it's called uh, the book is called The Train Spinoza, the Renegade Jew who gave us modernity. Um, and I like that book, and it, in some ways, it it fits in very well with the uh, with the themes we've been discussing. Yeah, and if you. Um... Our listeners want a full list of all 10 books, plus a bunch of other things, and a picture of Rebecca Goldstein with President Obama getting some kind of very shiny-looking medal. Yeah, um, some bling, some White House bling. <laughs> you can go to RebeccaGoldstein.com, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N.com, and uh, get the full resume. It is so many accomplishments, it's hard to list in one sort of uh, podcast plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Hansa. It's been a pleasure. Here too. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us this week for our episode. And don't forget the quote that Rebecca Goldstein told us earlier by Rabbi Hillel. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm not for others, what am I? We'll see you next week.